right, we're going to jump into uh, week two of our series called On Heaven, uh, I'm sorry, On Earth as it is in Heaven, and as we talked last week, that comes from uh, within the teachings of Jesus called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, uh, about halfway through in Matthew 6, Jesus teaches us how to pray, it's called the Lord's Prayer, and I think it'd be good for us just to read that together, just for a little context to get us started, Matthew 6, verse 9, and it says, Our Father in Heaven... Your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Where? On earth now as it is in heaven. How do we do that? Well, first, Father, we ask that you give us our daily bread, things that we need every single day to be those kinds of people. And forgive us our debts, our sins, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Have forgiven, meaning we are always actively forgiving those who have sinned or wronged us because we also are forgiven as we have wronged God. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And uh, if you're not here, let me maybe try to catch you up a little bit on the why of this series, is we started talking last week about how all of us are living in what I'm gonna just call the remnants of a Christian built and kind of founded society. And I tried to really make a clear distinction. I am not talking about America specifically, while many of our Democratic Republic ideas are certainly Christian, absolutely. Only Christians come up with lines like, and all men are created equal. Uh, that has never existed ever before in humankind whatsoever. Uh, but mainly, what I want to point us to is this idea that what we would call in the West, you and I are Westerners, we have all been brought up and have been raised in, for the last several hundred years actually, a, a strong thread of Christian faith. But what happens though to a society just like ours when we decide that, hey, there are some of these things of, that Christianity has brought us that we really like, but we want to leave behind the Christ. And and I tell you, one of the things that's really important for us to probably do more so often is to look at what life was uh, before Christianity kind of changed the world, took over the world. And, and recently, I just heard a really brief story about a Roman like centurion soldier, you know, sometime probably 1 to 200 AD, so before Christianity really got hold, because if you know your Christian history, for the first two to 300 years, uh, Christianity was heavily, heavily persecuted. Uh, under, under the Emperor Nero, it was commonplace to say things like, you know, Christians light uh, the streets of Rome because they were lit on fire after being dipped in tar and would be burned alive. That's the kind of torture that, again, our forebearers, our Christian ancestors went through all because they claimed the name of Jesus and were so desperate to follow along in that truth. But in this specific story with this Roman centurion, uh, he is a letter that we have record of. You can look it up yourself. I can't remember the guy's name, but... He wrote a letter back to his wife. He was out on patrol for a couple months, and he knew that she was pregnant. And in the letter, he goes on to talk about how much he just loves her. So we see a man who is capable of loving his wife and, and being a husband who expresses you know, his, his empathy towards her and his love back to her and can't wait to see her again. Uh, but in the letter, he instructs her that if the child is a boy, to let it be, but if it is a girl, to do away with it. Now, what that looked like in that culture is do away with it could look like several things. Uh, it, could leave it, it could be leaving them, specifically females, on the side of the road for them to be picked up 
um, by slave traffickers. That's where most of the sex slave trade came from in that time of the world. Not unlike what we often see in other countries today. Or it could be leave it out in the woods for the wolves. And certainly if the child had any disability or abnormality, they were often even just thrown into the water somewhere to drown. I want to tell you something that a Roman soldier who just said that I love you wife, but if you have a girl, get rid of it, that was normal. So I want to say that he in his culture was not a monster. We view him as a monster now. Why? Well, because you're a Christian thinker. Because you have a different way of processing that. And it is only through Christian faith that that has happened. And so what we need to know and value and own is that the reason that we see everyone is valuable is because of the teachings of Jesus. The reason that even if we find out that a child has Down syndrome, we don't just like, well, throw it to the wolves. Why? Well, because we know that everybody has value, even the ones that are broken or slightly different amongst us. We still see you as an image bearer of God, and that has huge implications. So that's the world that you and I live in. And the problem is, though, is that what's starting to happen is culture, secular culture, is saying, okay, well, look, we love some of the aspects of Christian teaching. We talked about some of this last week, which is being, you know, we love universal human rights. That's a big conversation right now. There's a lot going on in the world, and it's all about human rights and who's valuable and all these kind of things like that. Human rights, Christian idea. Uh, value for the poor, Christian idea. You know, value for those who are outside the, the, you know, the things of society, again, a Christian idea. You know, a welcoming in the foreigner, Christian idea. All of those things are Christian ideas. And so what I, I want you to kind of visualize, I think this is what's happening in culture, because it's important to have maybe a visual, I'm a visual learner, is humans didn't invent the laws of nature. So old Sir Isaac Newton, many years ago, saw an apple fall, and he didn't say to himself, ah, I invented gravity. I call it, it's mine, I invented it. No, no, what did he say? There is obviously a law here. There's a law, there's a reason why every single time you drop something, it always goes down. Like what would happen in your life if you went to put down your keys and they hit the ceiling? You'd be like, Wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. Well, you know, it's like I'm in, I'm in a dream, right? All of a sudden, why? Well, because if gravity failed, we're all gonna die. Right? It's just a fact that if that law were to be broken out of our control, then we're all gonna perish, right? And so there are natural laws that we didn't invent. We just discovered them. We found them out. Now, again, this is a really uh, powerful Christian idea because Christians, not that we're the only ones that have done science, but Christians have always had this mentality that, well, God created the world, and in our scripture, Genesis 1 and 2, when God made the world, he said that it was good. So we live in a good, ordered creation, even though something is certainly terribly wrong with it, which the Bible has an answer for too, aka sin, but also that because God has made this world, we can discover the fingerprints of the architect. I don't think any of you walked in here today and said, wow, it is so crazy this randomly got built to look just like a church. That's wild, no. There was a lot of design to go into this and the same thing with the world and with you. Now, that's also to say that there are moral laws, moral laws. And so what we have now is a fight between what are the moral laws and where do those moral laws come from? So as a Christian believer, we're gonna say yes, there is a moral law 
that says, do not just kill anybody who gets in your way. Like, so what we're talking about in this series isn't something that is only Christianity. It's actually stuff that everybody's going to agree on. What we're trying to answer is why do we all agree on it? Why do we all hold this as a value? Why do we all think this way, even though so many in our culture are denying the existence of the God who we believe created them, why do we still hold them as a law, as a, as a universal truth almost? Because what I want to communicate to you is that it has not always been that way. The world before the revolution of Jesus and his followers was dark, cold, and wicked destructive. It is not the world that you and I know now. My concern is, and this is not a, a sphere of speaking because it happens slowly, but my concern is, well, what happens, though, when we abandoned the foundation of the Christ? We can, it's like you can spend money up until the checks start bouncing. I'm concerned that culturally, that morally, our checks are going to start bouncing because we're gonna run out of Christian currency to sustain the spending that we are. And what happens is everybody then devolves into their own little pockets of right and wrong and what's valuable and what's not. It's already happening, it's already happening. But I don't wanna get into all that. What I wanna talk about today is this idea of, because we're picking a topic, is of this, these, this phrase or these two things uh, together. It's this, it's perseverance and self-control. Perseverance and self-control. Aren't you glad you're here today so we can talk a little bit about the perseverance? That sounds really exciting, but I, I understand that, but this is actually a really powerful value that, again, not only do we own, but also the culture around us. Why? Because there is something in the fabric of the universe that God put there that gives power to this idea of perseverance. But first, let's define it. Perseverance is this. It is continued effort to do or achieve something despite difficulties, failure, or opposition. So perseverance is, at base, a continued effort. Despite the hardships, despite the circumstances, despite the uphill nature of whatever you're facing, to persevere is to keep going, to keep pushing, to keep digging in, to keep giving it effort, all you got to make it to the end. Now, again, this idea is not just valued and taught only in the Bible. And how I know this is because I went to the place that knows everything, a.k.a. Google. And I went into Google and I typed in perseverance and self-control, but I didn't say Bible on the end. I just said perseverance and self-control. And page after page after page coming up with not just good positive articles about, you know, hashtag no quit, that kind of stuff like that. No, I'm talking about scientific articles that state in a summation of this, those in a culture who demonstrate an above average ability to keep pushing, to keep fighting despite their circumstances, despite where they were born, who they were born to, how much money they did or didn't have, the common denominator in most success stories is an ability to persevere and to control oneself when under distress. Science proves it. Like, it is a scientific fact, that is not something I'm just saying and I'm asking you to believe. It is out there in the journals. So nobody's going to argue with me at this point. There's not going to be somebody that's going to show up as an atheist and go, I don't believe you, because it's what science shows us. The data says that. Why? That's what we should ask as a Christian believer. Why is that? 
If it's something so universal to, to, that doesn't know any language or creed or, or culture, why is that? Why would God put that into the fabric of his universe? Why would that be there? And so what we need to do as Christians is begin to ask harder cultures to the culture and of the culture around us and even uh, back to ourselves because I don't want us to have a cheap faith, a weak faith that just accepts things on face value. That's not what the Bible is at all. It beckons to be studied and div, div, um, divin, div, div, divided, dove into, to dive into. That's the word. It's one of those conjugations there. So here's some hard questions. Why does culture think this? Why does it value perseverance and self-control? Well, let's ask some hard questions. Well, so much of culture currently stands in two places. There is either a, there's a very large, what I would say agnostic culture growing within the Western world, certainly within Christianity. Agnosticism means I don't know if there's a God, but I don't really care. I'm not gonna live like there is one anyway. That's kind of a, an easy synopsis. Somebody might would wanna you know, better, better do that if they actually were an agnostic. That's usually what an agnostic is. I don't know, and it doesn't matter. Don't know, it doesn't matter. Maybe there's God, maybe there's not a God. It doesn't impact my daily life. I'm gonna live just as if there is a God because I've never met an agnostic online or in person that says, I don't know, but I'm gonna live as if there is one. <laughs> they always live as if there isn't one. Or obviously then something like atheism that says, well, I don't believe there is a God at all. And so both of those things really come then to the final conclusion of we are all, all of us are a byproduct of what you would call random chance, random chance through genetic mutations and evolutionary processes that happened over the last several millennia that brought us to this place. That means that everything that you do has been pre-programmed into your mind and body as a response due to the evolutionary method because that is what evolution has determined to be the most likely candidate for future success. Y'all following me? Y'all following that idea? Everybody with me? Okay, so here will be some of the questions here. If there is no God, why should it matter, or does it really matter if I work hard for my dreams? Because this is where culture begins to kind of, I feel like break down because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. So we tell our kids, hey, popular culture is gonna say, listen, don't indoctrinate your kids about faith. Let them discover that on their own, you know, whatever. That's something you hear a lot of times. There may be a God, there may not be a God. I think there's more agnostic than strictly atheism, but, but let's, just, let's just stick with agnosticism. But, but then we tell our kids, look, if you try hard enough, if you believe hard enough, if you push through hard enough, you can be whatever you want to be. You can go and do whatever you want to do. Now, technically, yes, the science does back that up a little bit, that if you push hard and if you persevere, you are more likely, but one, it is not a promise. The science isn't a promise, it's just a likelihood. And number two, the question still is, well, why? Why try so hard to persevere if at the end of the day, nothing matters? Because look, I wanna tell you something. This is really, really important. Since we're all here together talking about God, we need to just have this out in the open. If there is no God, nothing matters. Your life doesn't matter. Look, if there's no God, there is no purpose to your pain. If there is no God, there is no reasonable conclusion that means you should ever sacrifice anything for anyone. 
you would be stupid to do so. If there's no God, it absolutely makes sense that might always makes right. Why would you sacrifice the strong on behalf of the weak? And look, I want want to be really honest. As I look at the stats, you know, I try to be a, a good student of culture. I think it's part of my job. And what really bothers me, it breaks my heart, trying to figure out a way how we as a church can, can step into these gaps sometimes, but the rate of suicides in our country is terrifying. Now, specifically among men, but it is, it is high regardless. I want to, but again, let's look at the reality. Let's look at where we are. Let's look where we are. Right now, the, the, a lower middle class family lives better than a wealthy Roman would have 2,000 years ago. The people that we're talking about, you know, the story I shared. Like, we have things like hot and cold water all the time on tap. The, the, the invention of electricity has changed the world so dramatically, like, none of y'all had to make a candle and to gear up your horse and buggy to make it here today. Like, we live in such a, a place of convenience, it's absurd, and it's only getting better, and yet somehow, we only keep getting worse. Like, we somehow have more to live for, more access. We live in so much more wealth, even the average of us, even those lower on the spectrum, we can go and do and see and experience and do things that would only have been fathomed to the ultra-wealthy, the Elons of, of, of antiquity. But no, you and I can get on a plane and in six hours be almost anywhere on this planet, and yet life is pointless. Why? Well, because that's what happens when the culture divorces the Jesus. It leaves you with an empty, hollow shell. You know the laws are true. The science points to it, but you can't answer why. And it's scary. And look, it is not because I think culture is wicked and broken. It's always been that way. My culture's always been that way. Actually, what this is is the sign of a bunch of Christians Failing to be persevering, self-controlled Christians. As a matter of fact, this is where I think we get a little bit of this, uh, the Bible teaching of this. Where do we see signs of this idea of perseverance? Well, Jesus himself says it. Again, in Matthew 5 through 7, Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 7, Jesus makes this quick statement, and I can see him pulling everybody close. He's been preaching now for a few hours and, and just telling all these truths, and he pulls everybody close. He says, look, 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 look. How narrow is the gate and how difficult the road that leads to what? Life. Now, if I were to read this in the 2024 non-Christian translation, it would be, well, how narrow and difficult is the road that leads to personal success and fulfillment? How how narrow and difficult the gate, the road that leads to sexual gratification? How how difficult the road that leads to wealth and and happiness and, and, and fame or whatever, all of those things. But listen, all of those things divorced of Jesus are death. Anything that Jesus is not in, it is death. Why? Because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the 
life. And Jesus says, narrow is the road and difficult the path that leads to me. Where I am, though, is life. The reason we Christians believe in the idea of perseverance is because at the end of every single hard problem is Jesus as life. That's why we can persevere. That's why we can have hope in the darkest of moments. And look, that doesn't mean that it's always easy, and that doesn't mean that we don't struggle, and that doesn't mean that there's not mental illness and things like that to need to be aware of, but look, you can't get the past the point that without Jesus, it's pointless, but with Jesus, everything is worthwhile. Everything is worthwhile. So, I wanna get us to, because I love an object illustration, and so I've really racked my brain about how can I help lock this into your mind. And some of this is, I'm a, I'm a visual learner, and so I'm, I'm appealing to you visual learners out there. What I have here, I'm so excited to show you this. <laughs> what I have here, this is named, not just by me. Again, Google told me, so it has to be true. One of the greatest inventions of the 20th century. Guys, this thing here has changed our life, and I can't, I can't wait. To, I can't wait to show you. I can't wait to show you. Y'all ready? Y'all ready? On three. Here we go. One, two, three. <laughs> it's a microwave. Now I don't know if you've heard or used one of these before, but it's incredible. You take cold leftover food, and guess what? You don't have to eat it cold anymore. It's incredible. You put this in here, you set a set of numbers on here, and you sit and stare at it, preferably with your face, right up next to it, and it comes out almost mostly hot, pretty unevenly, but it's okay. You can eat the food then. It's amazing, right? It's amazing. I don't know if you ever, like, went, how you went to college if you were single, but uh, I'm pretty sure if I didn't have this, I would have died. I just, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be here today. This actually saved my life once. True story, whenever I would come home from college, Usually, I guess, for my mom to wash my clothes. Not because she didn't raise me right, but because I was lazy. But she would always send me back with food because it's her love language to me. Um, it was food, still is. But she would always send me with uh, Chef Boyardee ravioli and Totino's pizza rolls. Guys, I have, little did I know that the best part of my life was back then, you know, but that, this little magic box, all I had to do was come to school, sit in my dorm room, and I could have a hot meal in about a minute 30. But you know the funny thing about a microwave is even though, I'm, of course, I'm joking and blowing it up, like these are great, obviously. You, you know, the worst thing ever has to be, especially if you have young kids, but you come home late, everybody's tired and hungry, you live too far from a restaurant, or you don't wanna go out and spend the money, and so what do you do? To think and say, oh my gosh, I have to put something in the oven for 50 minutes, I would rather step out in moving traffic. But this thing here, I can warm up that six-day-old pizza. It's six days, it's fine, it's not seven. Seven's the number of completion anyway. Completion is in, it needs to go in the garbage at that point, but it's been six days. Microwave it for an extra 30 seconds, it'll be fine. Will it come out tasting like rubber? Absolutely, but it won't kill you, right? There is warm food on the table. But we love these things because it is such a sign of our culture, and I'm not talking bad about a microwave, like you come tack mine, I'll fight it like a child, but fight for it like a child. But the fact is this is a symptom of our instant gratification culture because here's what we also know. This has its limits. Like none of y'all are running out to the grocery store for lunch, picking up a $20 steak and say, I can't wait to nuke the hang out of this thing. Boy, I really want something that has the texture of a tire rubber. 
You know, I just, I want my, my jaw to cramp up that I'm having to chew on this thing so bad, right? Because no, we know that's a nonsensical thing to do. There are certain things that don't belong in here, but there are, are good uses for this. Now, I share all of this to say because what we don't need to have is kind of what I'm terming around this is this phrase here, a microwave faith. A microwave faith. A microwave faith is a faith that is impatient and ultimately cheap. It's an impatient and, and cheap faith. See, microwave faith, I actually think, is partly what's been the problem and what has gotten culture here. Because, see, instead of fighting against culture when it was necessary, we have kept and continued to go along with culture in its desires and designs to make things fast, cheap, and easy. And so while that's great for your ravioli, that's fine. I don't think you need to be cooking on the stove when microwave is just as good, right? But there are some things that need to stay out of the microwave, and there are some things in our walk with Jesus that also don't need to be instantaneous and gratify us right now. There are things worth waiting for. There are things worth growing in and pursuing and persevering in. So microwave faith sounds a lot like this. Well, if God really loved me, blank, he would, blank. If God really loved me, I just feel like if God really loved me, he would make my dreams come true. I'm, look, if God really loved me, he would make me wealthy so I could tithe more. I'm just telling you, I would tithe more. If God really loved me, he would heal my body. If God really loved me, or here's another one, if God was was really good, if God is really good, then he would not allow blank. And here's actually why that one's significant because many of the people that I've talked to over the years and even just watched other encounters of people who have moved into agnosticism or atheism or whatever, often is because they can't understand how a loving God will allow bad things to happen, whether that's personal or corporate, you, you know, uh, wars, Floods, and I'm not saying those are always easy problems, but again, that is not a concern that the first, I don't know, 2,000 years of Christianity was worried about. We always had good answers for them. It's just in the last 100 or so years, we're just like, I don't know. I can't answer that because I can't pop it in and it doesn't pop right back out in 30 seconds. I don't know the problem. <laughs> Thought I broke the staff microwave. It's okay. <laughs> Tell the staff it's cold food, guys. I'm sorry. It was for the Lord. Here's another one, last one here. This is actually really, really common in areas and in groups of people like us. This is another microwave faith statement. Microwave faith says, well, if I can just do good enough, then God will. If I can just be good enough, do good enough, do the right things, then God will. And I wanna tell you, that is, that is not Christianity at all. That is actually a form of paganism. So what paganism did, or what pagans did, and you can read this both in the New Testament, but you still see it in other places in the world, is a pagan religion mindset says, the gods are angry, I'm in a circumstance that I don't wanna be in because the gods are angry, whatever that may be, whether it's the weather is bad, whether it's because I can't have a kid or somebody's sick, or whatever, in order to appease the gods, I must then sacrifice something. And so in pagan religions, that has been all sorts of things, certainly naming both 
people, slaves, children, all of those things. Again, when did child sacrifices stop happening? Oh, I don't know, when people became Christian. Why? Because we don't live under that paradigm that when the volcano's acting up, we're not gonna go throw some innocent person in there to appease the God of the volcano. We're gonna say, no, we, we believe in a God that has ordered the world, and we're gonna pray directly to him because his son has come and interceded on behalf of us. His spirit is inside of us, and even though we fail, we repent, and we are forgiven, we don't have to appease a God like that. See, the religious person says, if I can just act right, if I can just do all the right things, read my Bible, go to church, say the right things, then God has to. And when you do that, you always step outside the bounds. Look, everybody knows the book of Job, or probably heard of the book of Job. Did you know that in the book of Job, which is a hard answer, I'm not making fun of, Did you know that in all the things that happened to Job and Job kind of asking why and his friends wrestling with the whole thing is an interesting book, God never gives Job the answer why. You know what God actually tells Job at the end, like in the last chapter or two? Sum it up this way. Job's right on the verge of accusing God of being mean and petty. And then God comes in in a whirlwind, mind you, in utter power and holiness. And he asked Job, hey Job, since you seem to know everything, where were you when I laid the foundations of creation? Hey Job, where were you when I pulled the mountains from the sea? Or when I placed you into the womb of your own mother? Where were you, Job? And so maybe, even though it's hard, I want to give you some. I'm give you some Christian teaching that is difficult to swallow sometimes, but is the absolute truth. God does not owe you the why. God doesn't owe you the why, and I want to put it into context of what maybe you and I would understand. Is there are times in being a parent when you do not owe your kids why. You. The only, they actually owe you the answer of yes, sir, yes, ma'am. I do not understand, but I will obey. And see, what a, what, a, what a microwave faith does is it diminishes the power and potential of struggle in our life. Because look, Christian faith is never, ever taught, never, ever, that life is supposed to be easy for the Christian believer. That, that does not exist. That kind of mentality is a current American modern mentality. Did not exist for the first, well, 1800 years. For the first 300 years to be a Christian was almost a death sentence anyway. So let's just put that into our, our, our mind a minute. But a microwave faith, what it does is it says anytime I am pain, God must be punishing me. But actually what we read is that it is the thing that God is using to strengthen, mature us, and to teach us perseverance. So we see this, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. It says, let us run with what? Endurance. I don't know if you're runners. I have ran like once before. But when I did it, what I learned is everything is uphill. It is unbelievable. Like that small little incline out of your driveway that you don't even notice in your car, like it's a killer, man. Who put hills all over this place? You know, I would be a runner if I lived like in the salt flats out in, out in like Arizona or something. But let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. How? Well, by keeping our eyes 
on something on Jesus. Why can we as Christians persevere? Because we believe with all our heart that through and at the end and inside of every single bad situation, there is goodness and life to be found because Jesus is there. That is why we can persevere. It is not pointless. There is never a wasted pain when you live your life for Jesus. Doesn't mean it's absent from it, but it's never a wasted pain. Never a wasted pain. Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Why, what did he do? Well, for the joy that lay before him, he what? Endured, he persevered the cross, despising his shame and sat down, had the right hand of the, right hand of the throne of God. So, so how do we mature as Christian believers? How do we get out of this? How do we stop putting steaks in a microwave? You know, how do we stop asking those kind of microwave faith questions? Let me just read this from Romans 5. This will kind of build us to where we need to go and to finish. Paul writes to a church in Rome. He says, the same Rome that was telling their women that if you have a girl, leave her beside the road. That's the context now. Now you know. So Paul writes to families who are sometimes going beside the road and adopting those little girls and bring them into their home, by the way. He's writing to those kind of people now. So Paul writes, says, look, we have obtained access through him, through Jesus, by faith, into this new grace. We are living in a new age of grace. That is why the world is changing, and it has changed, and I think if we get our act together, we'll continue to do so. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. We even boast in the hope that we have in God. But not only that, this is where it gets the key. We also boast in our, ooh, this is tough, in our what? Our afflictions. We boast in our pain. Now, culture will tell you to do anything but boast in your pain. But as a Christian, even when we experience hardship, it is an opportunity for God to have glory. We boast in our affliction because we know, listen to his language, we know that affliction produces endurance, perseverance, the ability to keep moving and to keep going and to not give up. I'm actually convinced because we have we have made both ourselves victims and demonized affliction that when they come, we think something is wrong and when they don't get solved fast because we want microwave fixes for everything in our world, we want the doctor to fix it, the psychiatrist to fix it, God to fix it, the pastor to fix it, just fix it. And sometimes God is, the best thing I can do for you because I love you is for you to stay right there because that's where the endurance comes from. That's where your strength comes from. You want fortitude of mind? Get used to being comfortable and trusting that God has goodness in it. Because affliction produces endurance. Induced endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. So here's, here's just a quick process. We talked about self-control a little while ago. I think part of Perseverance is the ability to control yourself when things get hard. The ability to have a certain amount of self-control. Self-control is a gift of the spirit, right? 
Well, I think there are just three quick things that we can identify really, really fast. I know it's the end, so these are not main points. These are just working this out to conclusion. Number one, self-control looks like controlling my emotions. Self-control looks like controlling my emotions. Obviously, if we are out of control emotionally, everything else is off kilter as well. So how do we do that? Well, we control our emotions with the truth, and we know and understand things. It's exactly what Paul was saying. We say things like, well, truth is truth regardless of how I feel. Truth is truth regardless of how I feel. The truth of God is true regardless of how I feel or what I'm experiencing. So here is the truth about a lot of our situations. You can look further into these. The truth is that God is in control, Isaiah 41. The truth is that you are, I am, we are children of God, John 1. We, God has a good plan for me. Regardless of how it feels, I trust the truth that God has good for me, both in it and on the other side, Romans 8. I can trust him no matter what, Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord and not in your own understandings. So, Controlling your emotions. The second part of self-control is controlling your reactions. It's often easy to control reaction, uh, actions because they're planned. Reactions are what happens when what's inside accidentally spills out. That's where some of our trouble comes. I'm good as long as I can think about it and pray about it and have the conversation in my head before. The reaction is road rage. That's why none of y'all are sitting. Look, if some of y'all were to sit in your car and go, I'm just going to woosaw this whole time. I am going to control my mind. No, we get in the car, we're already late, and then that idiot gets in the way because who's driving 15 miles below the speed limit at 7.55 in the morning? <laughs> Who does that? I'm telling you, demons are real and they have driver's license. I'm, con I'm convinced. <laughs> and look, I know you want to be sympathetic because some of you are like, well, you never know. No, look, they disguise themselves as innocent-looking old people. I'm telling you, I'm not being ageist. It just happens to be that way because as I'm driving through and I'm trying to burn a hole through their skull, it's somebody's grandma, and nobody wants to say, Grandma, what time did you leave the house today? Oh, 7.50. Grandma, what are you doing? You're getting curses spoken over you, Grandma. Leave the house earlier or later. You ain't got nowhere to go, Grandma. You retired. I control my reactions just because I feel out of control doesn't mean I have to respond that way. I can speak in love even when I don't feel love. I can forgive even if there's no apology given. I can bring calm where there is chaos and I can bring healing where there's pain. Number three, self-control is controlling my thoughts. Understanding that where the mind goes that the heart often follows. Understanding truths that there are things that I will not know on this side of eternity. Trusting that even though I may not know the why, I know who's behind the why. Knowing scriptures like Isaiah 55, eight through nine, where God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways and your ways are not my ways. Verse nine, for as heaven is higher than the earth, that's infinitely so, by the way, so my ways are higher than yours and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is thinking on a plane that we cannot comprehend. And I know that doesn't always make it easy, and I'm not trying to dismiss away the problems. I'm just like, well, God knows. But I do want to tell you that God knows. 
God knows. And so what that means is, can you boast in the hope of God? See, keeping your thoughts on God's goodness, his promises, his salvation, and ultimately his deep love for you as a child of his. See, by exercising self-control in our emotions, our reactions, and our thoughts, God then has the opportunity to teach us perseverance. And so I believe, I really do, that a lot of the problems that we're seeing in culture is because most of us Christians have actually been far too satisfied with eating all of our spiritual dinner out of this. Quick, easy, cheap. There's so much more to be had. There's so much more to be done. Look, why hasn't God come back yet? Well, because somebody else needs to hear. He's not done. His work is not finished. And so instead of just constantly trying the same thing and watching the world that we so love, that our Christian ancestors help build the values that they died for, and we can barely muster up the courage Say something snarky on social media. We're better than that. We're better than that. So that's it for today. You guys will stand with me. Um, I'm going to pray. Close us. Uh, we do have a few baptisms right after this, so there'll just be a brief pause. If you don't have to stay, the service is technically over if you're new here, but we just, we just love to gather around and just celebrate in what baptism means and the declaration of somebody moving from death to life in the name of Jesus Christ. And so I'd love for you just to, to stay, just find any spot over there. We'll direct you if we need to, but let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you so much for this moment in time, these truths that you have built into your universe, your creation. I pray that we hold these things with, with respect. We speak them with courage. We just... We help be the change, the light, the salt, all of the things that we need to be to the culture around us that knows that these things are right, that perseverance, self-control, these things just feel right, and they are, but only in the context of the life of Jesus. That was to be those agents of change in our world so that we can pray and believe every day on earth as it is in heaven. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.